self storage in particular, like, is it one of these asset classes that's like we're scratching the surface, or is it pretty well saturated at this point? It's definitely not saturated nationally. Self storage continues to keep evolving. You're getting people electronic doors. You're getting basically like smart bots that are handling people. They're basically having different types of call centers. I mean, there is so many different things that you can do that are still evolving the process. And as a result, because it's not under trade asset classes, the returns are absolutely ridiculous. You know, I'm building facilities under $50 a square foot, and then we're trading anywhere from 80 to 90 a square foot. My daughter could explain that to you guys. Like my daddy can build 50,000 square feet at $50 a square foot, and he, he can turn around and sell at a $40,000 Delta. That's $2 million, you know? Yeah. So. Yeah. It's not hard to sell that to investors. It's a super easy elevator pitch. What's going on, everybody? Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Jamie Gruber, along with my co-host, Grant Warrington. How's it going, buddy? Going great. I'm excited to hear this one. I got a lot of questions about self-storage, so I'm excited to dig into this. Yeah, me too. Me too. It's funny. We've had a Michigan run. We had Aaron Kaderberg, yeah. and now we got we got Charlie on. So we had a Michigan run recently. So yeah, Aaron was actually just at my site, actually. We uh we did like a quick video about the irrigation on site at one of our facilities. Yeah, and he's got an interesting self storage self-storage deal in a prison. So Oh. Yeah, we'll, we'll talk self-storage, no doubt about it, no doubt yeah. about it. Our guest today, Charlie Gao, is an investor, entrepreneur, GoBundance member, uh, father, a husband out of Western Michigan, uh, and he is all about self-storage. So we're going to dive into that today and get uh, some really great nuggets from him. Charlie, man, welcome. Thanks for being on. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, of course, of course. Let's start with a little backstory. So I mentioned Western Michigan, but kind of give us the beginnings. Where are you from? Is that where you're from originally? And and kind of your story in uh, in five or so minutes. Yeah, so uh, so my dad was an immigrant. He moved here when he was uh, 39, and then um, kind of long story short, um, but uh, he uh, could not find uh, many jobs because he couldn't speak English when he moved to the United States. And so he found a job for one of the few women that could speak Chinese um, that owned a, a large commercial real estate portfolio uh, up in the Tri-City area, so Midland Bay City, Saginaw area. And uh, essentially what happened is he got a job as a handyman. And then um, what happened was one of the restaurants, one of the chefs basically no-showed and he was like, hey, I, I can cook. And she was like, uh, well, I guess I got no options. I got to let you cook. And uh, he actually did a really good job. And so she was like, okay, well, I got to figure out what I'm going to do because you're my best handyman. And he was like, well, I'll do both. So he, he basically did both for almost a decade, just wow. grinding out 80, 90 hour weeks. Like it was absolutely insane, you know, like, uh, so I really don't know how he did it, to be honest. But um, uh Essentially, from that point forward, I essentially switched over to be his free, you know, sewage, pickup, cleanup, like child labor, like, you know, guy <laughs> that, you know, works for free. So uh, every child labor law you can think of from a, from a you know, flat roofing a, a roof when I was 12, getting tied to a tree with chainsaw, you know, like, I mean, it, I broke every OSHA law possible you can think of. So that was kind of my start in real estate. Um, I lived in Michigan pretty much the most of my life, but I did live outside for a decade where I lived everywhere from England to Chicago to California um, before kind of moving back. So, wow. wow. How did your father, so he's coming from, uh, it sounds like China. Is that where your dad's from? Uh, from Taiwan. Taiwan. How did he find Midland, Michigan of all places? So uh, my, my aunt was a really well-known doctor, actually, uh, in the Midwest. Um, she was a, a pediatrician with a specialization where she could issue, like, controlled substances, which I guess there's not many of those in the United States. Mm. Um, so we got actually sponsored very easily because she's a doctor. And so she was based out of Midland, Michigan. So that's why we ended up here of all places. Got it. Got it. Yep. That makes perfect sense. Okay, so, cool. Um, you mentioned your beginnings in real estate started then. What were your beginnings in real estate? Where did you start? How did you start? Yeah, kind of give us that story. Yeah, I was basically just grinding, you know, like lifting toilets. Like I was basically doing any maintenance. My dad was a heavy owner operator and nothing got contracted out. And uh, at the time, uh, I don't remember what the manual was, but we didn't have YouTube back then. So it was basically studying manuals, like, you know, doing whatever you can before we, we basically hire it out. So, um, you know, I, I basically uh, was such a uh, so sick of real estate that by the time I got into high school, 
I was like, there's no way I'm doing anything in real estate. Real estate sucks. <laughs> so, of course, obviously that changed. Uh, you know, I was uh, working a lot of W-2 jobs, you know, um, making significant money for others. And, and at one point I was, you know, I did $85 million in sales uh, for my territory, like 80 to 85 million. Wow. And I was getting paid like, you know, 0.001% of that. And so I, you know, I realized that, you know, if I work this hard in real estate, I probably could do a lot better in that. And then also I kept running to a lot of clients. So um, that were, you know, investing in real estate and like, I was hearing how they were making it more passive. Oh, you know, I can do this. I don't have to do it the way my dad did it. So that's kind of how I transitioned over. Interesting. What did you do? What were the W2 jobs sales? What, what was that? And how long did you do it for? Yeah, so my uh, master's in exercise physiology. So I was a division one strength coach at two division one universities. Wow. Uh, that was kind of my my first job. That paid absolutely horrible, uh, but I enjoyed it. Um, but uh, it's you know it's insane because you know you spend so much time around athletes doing that. You think that you'd be in good shape yourself, but it, it's actually <laughs> the exact opposite. Like yeah. my my coach, we used to joke around. He had an IV of Monster Red Bull running out of his arm because <laughs> yeah. he goes through like a case a day. So. Um, so I did that. And then I also was working in finance and banking. So I had a commercial lending background. So that helped out quite a bit. And then I worked in uh, med tech sales for about uh, five years. So all told before you pivoted to real estate as a full-time venture, was that about a decade of time? Am I counting that right? Or So uh, I actually tried to, uh, I actually quit my job, my W2 job and got into real estate. And then what happened was I got sick uh, to the point where, uh, I mean, I was making like $40,000 a year passive, you know, and um, the thought process behind it would have been that, you know, I'm not going to not do anything. But then when I got mm -hmm. sick, I was purging medical bills and I wasn't able to work. So, um, so the worst case scenario kind of happened to me. So I went back to a W2. I stayed in that W2 job way longer than I had to, obviously, because of circumstances that had me forward. Sure. So, I, I mean, like my, I mean, if like, you know, my whole family got in a car accident and had to take care of all four of them or something like that. I had to completely separate myself from the business and still purge, you know, $250,000 a year of medical bills. We would still be able to survive that, which is like a scenario most people couldn't. But that's pretty much the scenario I wanted to be able to survive before I quit because I had that terrible experience before, you know, that was pretty life altering. So what happened? You said you got sick. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, so I had a, uh, basically I had a, the basically I went to the dentist and the uh, the basically because I what happened is people were telling me, hey dude, your your breath smells, and I'm like I'm like I don't know why I'm doing everything. So we was basically found out that uh, I had cancer cells that were basically essentially decomposing my gums, and so the reason why my mouth smelled so bad is because it was basically eating them. So. Wow. So yeah, there's a good chance down the road I'm gonna get dentures earlier than most people, but. Um, it was not considered terminal, but at the same time, I'm sure didn't cover a lot of it, which I was really surprised. Why? Why didn't they cover a lot of it? Well, I, I was uh, self-employed and then they, they just kept, I mean, I, I look back, I there's so many different things I could do, but they basically kept throwing these loopholes uh, that made it very, very hard to get paid out that I essentially just, just kind of gave up. So. Mm. Um, so I walked away with six figures of medical debt, which, you know, I know that's not a lot to some people, but at the time when I was only making like 40,000 and then also wasn't able to work. I mean, that was basically like, you know, a hundred and hundred fifty, $160,000 swing. So, so having another more, a second home with a $40,000 salary, essentially. Yeah, you know, and, like and, and it, it's funny now because, you know, my, I, my dad actually just moved with me about a month and a half ago. So we're kind of back in that scenario again. You know, I have a caregiver for him and a lot of resources dedicated to take care of him. So, you know, it, in the end, I think it all worked out, but um, I definitely uh, worked a lot of 80, 90 hour weeks for a few years where, you know, like in my, in my medical sales job, you know, like I, I took my daughter to school one or to to, uh, to ride with me in the field for, you know, like bring your kid to work day one time. Mm -hmm. And her book report or her report on the trip was like, my dad drives a lot. He brings food to people. Their doctors <laughs> are hungry and he talks a lot. And I'm like, yeah. that's not exactly <laughs> what I do, but yeah. I can see why you see that. Paid. But, you know, more like, hey, he's an expert in the field of, you know, like, you know, but, uh, that's how she described what I do because pretty much I drove 65, 70,000 miles a year. But kind of what I did was, you know, the night before I'd plan out 15, 20 phone calls. And then while I was basically driving, I was either like listening to podcasts like this 
one and a half speed, 40 hours of podcast, getting the education that way while also doing sales calls nonstop. Hmm. If I drove by a storage facility, if I drove by an apartment complex, I'm like, well, shoot, I got eight hours of driving. Let's just go ahead and call them and see if they'll sell. So I was basically banging out sales calls for real estate while I was banging out sales calls for med tech sales. And I was kind of basically doing two jobs. So you know, even though like I was working 40 hours for one job, I made sure that all that drive time, you know, that 25 hours of drive time, I was utilizing that for real estate. Hmm. Wow, yeah. man. You said, I got a question about England though. That, that caught me. You said you've lived all over. What were you doing yeah. in England? Yeah. So, uh, um, I did basically did a work study in England. Um, I got through my master's program so fast that, uh, they basically said, Hey, there's this class that you have to take. Unfortunately, that's not offered until the spring of next year. And so I was basically like, well, what am I going to do then? Because I need, I, I need to graduate. And so they're like, well, we can offer you like this work study program. So I was like, you know, what? I basically just took it a semester off the, the work study program I did, I think, uh, I, I worked uh, for about six hours in a lab, and then um, I um, took like music class and like a bunch of other stuff. And and it, it, I was I was absolutely horrible at music. I was doing the Bart Simpson like garbage can like you know <laughs> Happy Birthday Lisa thing. If you guys yeah. are, are you know old enough to remember that, but uh, I I basically took just basically like fluff classes to waiting around to take that last class I needed to graduate. Nice, interesting. All right. So I, I didn't know about, I don't think I knew about the, uh, the, the, uh, the, the illness. That's no. incredible. I'm glad, glad, obviously you're over that. And I'm sorry to hear about your dad. I hope everything, uh, I hope everything is, you know, as comfortable as can be in that regard. Um, talk about, uh, uh, uh real estate self-storage. So that's kind of where you are now, right? So self-storage is, is, is what you're diving deep on and you're, you're being sought out to speak for, for different events around, like you become, uh, you become a, a big time self-storage guy. Where did that start? How did you get into self-storage? Was that like your first thing in real estate or did you evolve to that kind of, kind of give us that journey? Yeah. So, you know, if, if you look on paper, when I really started on paper, I probably started like in 2007, but like, I don't consider, I consider I was well, actually, I consider I was enslaved into real estate by my dad. That's <laughs> good to be honest. No, <laughs> no, there wasn't an option. I was forced to do it. Um, but on paper, like with documentation, but before that, I actually had a chance to uh, be in self-storage with my father because he owned an apartment complex from a self-storage facility. And that self-storage facility owner reached out to my dad's account and said, hey, do you want to buy this across the street? Which th that paired very well. So that was kind of my first exposure to that. When we sold that, we were like, oh, this is like the top of the market. It's never going to get you know better. And then, of course, what we had happen is we brought technology. We brought a lot of different things. We bought call centers. We brought like uh, electronic gating, electronic payment systems, web-based software. And that really revolutionized the industry and really just changed things significantly. So, uh, so I, I got back into that, but to be honest, it almost felt like a new industry. So, you know, I had to take a step back because I was primarily in multifamily, even though I have other asset classes. Um, but one of the reasons why I got into self-storage too as well was because um, I do a, a, a pretty large amount on the brokerage side. And what happened was I was marketing to like four to like 10 unit multifamily owners. And then what happened was is that I outgrew that. So then my clients or friends were like, hey, if you find a deal that you like, you know, can you pass it off to me? And so at first I was like, well, shoot, let's just make back my marketing. So I was charging like five or $10,000, you know, not making a lot, but eventually I started making more of that. Um, but then as we know, the market had a huge run up, you know, over the last five years, those clients came back to me like, hey, Charles, I know you just sold me like a, a 10 unit for a million dollars. I need a 1031 into another property. And I said, mm. well, I was looking at this two and a half million dollar property for myself, but I just made a $60,000 commission off you. I can make it on our $100,000 commission off you. And I don't want to lose you as a client. So then I was like, you know what? This, this might make sense. You know, I don't want to compete against my clients. So I'm reserved multifamily for my clients. I basically have done a heavy amount of brokerage in that. And then I switched over to self-storage side and I kind of like, I'm trying to really not take out any clients on the broker side for self-storage. And so it worked out because, you know, I took a step back to go forward, but uh, it really allowed me to just focus on self-storage for a couple of years and not focus on, you know, multiple asset classes and get distracted. Because I think that's my biggest problem was I was doing well in multifamily. So to do that well, and then try to do another thing well on top of it made it kind of difficult. 
Hmm. What's your what's your uh, your buy criteria, and is it evolved on on self storage? Like, what were you looking at versus what maybe you are looking at, or has it been kind of the same since you've gotten into it? Yeah, so I still invest in multiple asset classes, and uniformly across all my asset classes, uh, my criteria is very strict as far as economic indicators. So I, I have to be in an area that if if I look in the past ten years. And at any point there was a decline in population, I flat out won't invest. So it's got to have, wow. I'm looking wow. for job growth. I'm looking for uh, uh, job diversity and I'm looking for population growth. In general, I'm looking for areas that are above the average medium household income. So I was, so I'm really up, up, upgrading the type of asset class. So if you were classified, we're looking at now, I'm really looking at asset preservation more than asset growth because, you know, um, I'm, I, I got a big enough portfolio now that it's getting difficult enough to manage that we're actually modifying our model. So before we were taking models where we were building, taking it all the way to close. And you might have seen this. I put two cell storage for sale. Now we're actually just focusing on a build to flip model. So basically we're building and then getting certificate occupancy selling it. And then a lot of times we're getting the occupancy super high while it's in our contract, just because we're leasing up in case, you know, the buyer backs out. So that's kind of how we changed our model in that sense. Do you, do you, uh, are those criteria um, within certain markets only? Like, is it the state of Michigan or the Midwest, or is it anywhere? Do you buy anywhere if it meets those criteria? No, so no, you know, all of that. I, I'm incredibly strict on that criteria because you, we, we all have seen this, you know, we've seen operators mm -hmm. that basically got bailed out by the market run up. And the reason why they got bailed out is because of strong economic indicators. So the biggest thing is that I never want to be in a market where population is declining. And then I have to try to guess what that's going to do to the pricing when the supply demand curve falls off. Right. Whereas if I'm in a pot, an area like you, know, we'll use Grand Rapids, Michigan. Grand Rapids, Michigan needs 9,000 housing units by 2025. They're not going to get it with interest rates and building materials they have. If anything, it's been halted. Yeah. So, so you see that 9,000 housing uses. So I can at least bank that. I'm going to get at least the price I have today. I might not get the price. I, I can't uh, pro forma out for pricing in the future, but I, I have a high, I have a great equalizer here that if I buy wrong, if I mess up or anything, well, it's very easy to basically cover that mistake up if I have really strong economic background mm -hmm. and everything else, right? Yeah. You know, so so that's why I like to go that route, uh, even if it means you know um, taking a much smaller single digit return in the first one to two years, because I'm really focused on quality and basically asset per preservation at this point. I know another million dollars is not going to do more for my net worth at this point in time, so that that's really you know kind of what my focus is now. Now in Michigan. Because I understand this market so well, you know, I use self-storage example. Prison populations, uh, those are not, those aren't included in the census data. Those people are not getting storage. So, you know, mm -hmm. if I know an area like Ionia, Michigan, one of the largest prisons in the state, I can basically account for that. If I do self-storage in East Lansing, Michigan, the undergraduate student population is not included in the census data yet. You got, you know, 40,000, you know, kids in one of the top 15 largest universities in the country. So, so now I can add that back in. So, um, or let's say I'm in an area like, um, we'll say Traverse City, Michigan. Uh, we all know Traverse City, Michigan, the population, the area around all those lakes, like 10 X's in the summer, you know, so I might have a deal that doesn't look good on paper, but then when I look at them, I'm like, well, shoot, you have a lot of wealthy people that have second homes. They got boats, RVs, all these toys, and they're using a lot of storage. So you know, I can be above the, you know, guru recommendation in those areas. So in areas I know that well, I, I definitely will. But most of what I have out, out of state would be like, you know, I know you guys had a deal. I think it's in Georgia that you guys did. I, I'm not investing right. in that deal to be an operator. Or, you know, most of the time, if I'm a GP... I'm close to silent, you know, just enough to meet the requirements because um, somebody has expertise in the area. That's what I'm paying for. I'm paying for their expertise because that has value to it. Whereas in Michigan, everything I have, I'm generally the operator for. It's my backyard. Nobody knows it better than me. I, I'm not going to entrust that to somebody else to operate it unless it's one of my partners that has more experience or it's a new asset class. So that's kind of my philosophy there. You know, like I'm investing in people and I'm investing in the quality of the asset. And, and also from a banking perspective, we were always taught this when I was lending that if this person forecloses, you know, like, I guess they say they can run it this way, but can the bank run it that way or can the bank hire somebody else to run it that way? So we were always looking at 
if this comes back to us, you know, what we'll be doing. So that was one of the benefits of working in finance is I look at from bacon perspective, what the bank wants is also now what I also want as well. Got it. Mm-hmm. Multifamily felt like it got, and maybe still to this day, uh, saturated, right? There's a lot of people in the, in the, in the game. There's a lot of, uh, sort of influencers with masterminds and all that stuff. Maybe it's because we're in the world and we're zoned in. I don't know, but self-storage feels like that next thing feels like it. I don't know if it is or not. Is it saturated right now? Like, I, I love what you talked about in the markets that you look for, uh, the markets that you buy in, how you look at the criteria mm-hmm. that you have and everything else. But you made a decision, obviously, like, okay, multifamily, I'm I'm too, I'm competing with my clients. I'm going to go somewhere else. So there's industrial, there's hotel, there's a whole lot of different plan. And you, you maybe touched a lot of it because you mentioned you have kind of a diverse portfolio, but self-storage in particular, like, is it, is it, I don't know. Is it one of these asset classes that's like we're scratching the surface or is it pretty well saturated at this point? Uh, it's definitely not saturated nationally, um, even though um, it definitely is saturated in certain markets. Mm. Um, you know, so I use Austin, uh, Texas, for example. Austin, Texas right now is oversaturated by I think like one and a half square foot per capita. So the numbers that we're always using for wow. feasibility study is we are using basically uh, a square foot per capita. So if there's a hundred thousand people in a city and the supply demand recommendations from the storage almanac say you can absorb, we'll just use it around a nice even number eight square foot per capita. That means that it could be a total of 800,000 square feet versus in that radius. Mm-hmm. So now, but Austin, as we know, is one of the fastest growing cities in the country. So like when we do feasibility studies, we do them both in house and for others. Um, I will, if I see a market that's growing like 10%, which that market is growing in some, some areas is going 20% year over year. Oh. I actually will use the 2025 population to basically account for that. So, so there, there's some nuances there. Um, you know, the biggest thing I would say is that you mentioned multifamily, the returns have really gone down. There's a lot of billionaires in real estate. And, and the part of the reason why is because it, it's a strong safe haven because it's such a mature asset classes. People keep trying to bring new technologies to multifamily, but there's really not much more that you can really bring to it. You know, at this point in time, you really can't reinvent the wheel. I know people try to over and over again, but mm-hmm. I mean, they, they really don't take off. You know, I mean, you got great property management software and there's really just evolving that. Self storage continues to keep evolving. You're getting people with electronic doors. You're getting basically mm-hmm. like smart bots that are handling people. You're basically having different types of call centers. I mean, there is so many different things that you can do that are still evolving the process. And as a result, because it's not a mature, mature asset classes, the returns are absolutely ridiculous. I mean, like, you know, like I, I'm building a facility right now that, uh, and one of the reasons why I want to switch to a build a flip model is because. You know, I'm building facilities under $50 a square foot, and then we're trading anywhere from 80 to 90 a square foot. Mm-hmm. So going back to my example, my 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 kid, my daughter could explain that to you guys. Like my daddy can build 50,000 square feet at $50 a square foot, and he, he can turn around and sell at a $40,000 delta. That's $2 million, you know? Yeah. So yeah. It, it's not hard to sell that to investors. It's a super easy elevator pitch. And there's few moving parts but you just have to have really, really strong mastery. It makes it more important to get each one of those moving parts correct because there's fewer, but uh, it, it just makes things easier. So from our standpoint, like we had a BPO on a, on a facility where it came back like, you know, 10 or $12 a square foot higher to stabilize it. Then I was like, well, if I want to put those time and resources, but then I also got interest carry because I got, you know, an interest on loan, I got that. Well, that's like four to six dollars a square foot right there. Does it really make sense for us to do that? And, and a lot of these national companies, they can stabilize them so fast that you know they'll get in it. And the fact that they get six dollars a square foot of equity, they're willing to pay that. And so for me, you know, I don't do a lot of deals. I'm not doing 15, 20 deals a year. Normally I'm only doing two to three years in consulting on a lot more, but you know, I was with the private equity group and, you know, I had, I, I can't disclose the percentage, but I had a single digit percentage of the equity group and we're doing a $130 million deal. That's great. But then I can do $20 million and uh, get 20 to 50%. And so which one is worth more than me? Mm-hmm. So how I'm basically um, transitioning that a lot of that was because of my dad moving in and I had to step away from the business was I, I created a list. And I put down the list of like, how much am I making per hour doing all these things? Mm. 
and how much can I pay somebody to do it? And, and also kind of what do I think it's worth? And when it came down to the asset managing these complexes, it was so lucrative. It would be more than lucrative for most people. But when I just looked at the building aspect of it, if I could go from two to three builds to four to five builds and, and not take out the, by taking out the management piece, it just made so much more sense to do that. Uh, because the the return on time for me then was you know getting you know closer to ten thousand dollars an hour at that point in time. One of the things with uh, mm-hmm. with uh, uh, you mentioned about like nine thousand housing units in, in Grand Rapids or uh, you know in the multifamily space, especially workforce level housing, B class, C class, right? Is is oh. the lack of or or um, the lack of development or the uh, slowness of development, right? That's kind of what's, that's what's, you know, likely not to, it is my opinion, you could, you could, you could, uh, you, you look at this stuff way more than me. So challenge it, please. But, you know, I, I, that's where I see, you know, we're going to cool off in the housing market, but long-term there's still a demand supply uh, imbalance that we haven't had. I don't think in any other recession in the last 50 years or 80 years or ever for that matter. So that, that stuff is still there. Development is slow. Development is expensive. So there's a supply demand imbalance that maybe keeps some fundamentals in place cooling but not complete drop off. Yeah. But it's it sounds like in self storage is the risk that it like what I'm hearing is oh so anybody can pop up these self storage uh facilities for 50 bucks a square feet uh, a square foot or whatever. So very quickly a market any market that's maybe not saturated now could become very saturated if somebody wanted to build. This isn't like a hey there's a shortage of these mm-hmm. trading them is the only way to go and then improving the 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 uh the operation of the property. Like you can build them pretty quickly. Is that a risk to that industry? Yeah, so I mean, the, the biggest risk to industry is kind of like you said, like if you guys, if you have a builder that is built multifamily that decides they want to pivot into self storage, they can easily overbuild the market because I mean, it's fewer moving parts, there's more land for it, um, there's fewer obstacles. And, and unlike most other asset classes, like multifamily, when you build multifamily, most in most in Michigan, especially, most of the time you're underwater. The only reason why these multi can get built is, as you know, is with grants, like as mm-hmm. you're. It went out in Florida, you know, or some other markets that might be a little bit different where they're, you know, multi-strain for 250, 350, 450 square feet. Whereas in, you know, Michigan, we have a lot of areas that are trading. Uh, some areas we haven't trading it in, you know, double digits, but most of the time multi is trading under $200 square foot, which, you know, is not much delta. Whereas, you know, now for me, I, I built so much cheaper because I am doing the building construction management. So I, I can build them cheaper than anybody else. That and also we only build large facilities where I bring them down at scale because you know like I, I looked at a facility where if I I can do twenty two thousand square feet but after I do twenty thousand square feet my cost of build might be like sixty dollars square foot so why not do forty five fifty thousand square feet at fifty dollars square foot where I keep bringing all that space down because even if that extra ten or twenty percent there sits empty it's still at the exact same cost it would have been taking me to build essentially because you know at my excavator. No, I brought this up in my videos. Well, my excavators are saying like, honestly, that's too small of a job for me because it cost me fifteen and twenty five thousand dollars to drop my equipment. So, you know, if I'm taking fifteen thousand uh, dollar equipment drop and I'm spreading over fifteen thousand square feet, that's a dollar a square foot. Mm. If I'm doing a hundred thousand square foot bill, well, now okay, I'm looking at cents on the dollar too as well. So there's a lot of things that go into that with the mastery that goes into that. That's kind of like, you know, so I can build it probably $20 square foot than any of the builders in the area, especially because they're paying themselves and whatnot. How I pay myself basically is I pay myself with more equity instead. So, mm-hmm. so that is a valid concern there too as well. Um, what a lot, I'm starting to see a lot of more throughout the country though, is that people are getting more strict with building self stores. So there's a lot of areas in Texas where you have to have retail or you have to have a masonry fence around it, or you can't see the storage. And so that really sucks because now that just jacks your costs up, but it also makes sites a lot less feasible. So the areas that have very, very little restrictions, that is a worry for me. So that's one of the things that we consider. So like I might be in a market where, you know, we looked at a site in a market where it could absorb self storage, but I just looked at how much cheap industrial land there was around it. And ultimately, we declined the site because I was just worried about like we we somebody could easily build four hundred dollars square feet around us, and, you know, and so for this site, it just didn't make sense. I like high barriers. Like you look at the best self storage facilities in the country. One of them is San Francisco, California. I mean, guess what? They're not approving more self storage in San Francisco, California. Mm-hmm. They want more multi. So the facilities there 
are still going to be there when the population increases 20, 30, 40%. So like in markets like that, I would, I would actually even overpay to be in a market like that because I know that I have no ability for competition to go. So, so those, those are things that we have very strict criteria, which is another reason why. I mean, I, I have deals that, you know, I have a deal I sold to a client that, you know, he's making a lot of money on it. He's going to, he's going to, uh, um, and I, I, I passed on it because my criteria was too small. Um, you know, and a- afterwards he was like, yeah, thanks. You know, and I, I mean, I mean, he's going to make seven figures on this deal probably in about wow. 24 months. Wow. Um, so, wow. so, so we're really, st- I'm really strict on criteria. I, I don't want to lose money. Like I, 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 I rather make 4% or 6%, which is also why I invest passively with a lot of those funds too, as well. So, you know, something you mentioned, I grant, I know you got a question, but I just want just something you mentioned is, um, uh, about, you know, like San Francisco. Cause I think, I think the, you know, the popular uh, buzz phrases, why would you invest in California or why would you mm-hmm. invest in New York? And that's really talking about where there's people involved, tenants, yeah. right? But to your point, you know, I, I'm sure there's some, uh, I'm sure there's some laws <laughs> that are not advantageous even to the self-storage investor. I, I'm sure, but it's not like, hey, don't worry about paying rent for the next two years, uh, uh, person, you know, we got your back and landlord yeah. just deal with it. So it kind of re-exposes markets that maybe people swore off of as actually being some of the best markets to invest in, in yeah. terms of self-storage. So I just thought it was an interesting point. So great. Yeah, and also you don't have rent control in California on self-storage. So right. you can do whatever you nice. want. You don't have the crazy tenant laws. So it's not, it's not like old oh, landlord from these theater that. So it's just, it's just a completely different asset yeah, class. But I, I personally like areas with high, like very high barriers because then it knows that Okay, this guy that's just trying to build a self storage for the first time, he's not going to be able to get through all those restrictions. You know, like you know, every every site that we do has a, a very advanced drainage plan. Whereas you go to some areas, you can literally just draw like on a pencil, like mm-hmm. pencil and paper, and, and say, "Hey, this is roughly what we do." And they're like, oh, "Okay, cool. We went to high school together. Yeah, sure. Go ahead and build it." You know, I mean, so so we 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 like the high barriers and so we'd like to be in the um, markets of high barriers and so going back you know i'm bullish on self storage just like i am in any of our asset classes in strong markets i'm not bullish in self storage as a class in total which that might surprise people because you know i'm going to be i do a lot of speaking for self storage but i'm all about areas that make sense not just self storage makes sense so so Charlie, who's your like demographic? Who do you see the most of? Is it like baby boomers, like Gen Z? They move around a lot. Um, you know what I mean? And then also the demand, do do the different demographics have different demand? Like is outdoor um, or indoor climate controlled? Like, and what do you like to focus on yourself? Yeah, so that, that's an awesome question. You're actually uh, the first person that's asked me that that I, th- I can think of, actually. Uh, but so there are things you can do in self-storage that on paper look better. Like we know this, like I, I could buy like a, a property that has majority Section 8 tenants and on paper that looks better. But then sometimes you deal with what you can have with you deal with lower quality tenants. Yeah. That's the same thing with self-storage. So like a five by 10, Pretty much nationwide rents for you know over a, a dollar ten a square foot. Whereas when you get into like a 10 by 30, a 10 by 30, I might only get like 60 to 65 cents a square foot. So if I'm building out pro forma and I'm doing 52,000 square foot, if I just want to make it look super sweet, I'm just going, yeah, we're doing all five by fives, all 10 by tens. But in reality, with the management of that is that five by ten stay uh, don't stay as much. You know, they they're taking less stay less than a year. They do lease up faster, but then also too as well, they're also more likely to get auctioned because um, this stat is very old, but I still recall it to this day. But mm-hmm. uh, I was at a convention a while back that said the average person stores nine months of inventory. So basically what that means is that if I have a $50 unit, I'm storing probably $450 of product in that. Mm-hmm. So if they now, so if they've stayed there basically nine months and they got closed, of course, they're more likely to get a, go to auction. Now, if I have a 10 by 30, somebody storing a Corvette or a piano yeah. or something like that, our 10 by 30s, they rarely ever go to auction. And they do, a lot of times we actually make money on it, which in Michigan, you, you can't make money on the auction. You actually have to pay it back to that person, which is a huge pain on its own. 
So for me, I, I, I always hope we get as close to as much as we are the as possible without going over. But to be honest, as long as I can get somebody to clean out the unit for free, I'm okay with that. So, so, that, that, so that's, that goes, oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. Finish. Go ahead. So, so demographic wise, the reason why we like to go after a higher end tenant is because let's use Bolt RV. If I've just paid a hundred thousand dollars for a Bolt RV and I'm paying a hundred, uh, 70 bucks, 90 bucks a month to store outside or I'm paying in tight, I'm going to pay that. Like there's no way I'm not going to be because what I'm storing is so valuable. It's not working for goals on it. Even if let's say the economy collapse, mm-hmm. We have basically the lien holder on record. So then I basically call it, I go after abandoned title and then basically I try and take it and the lien holder will pay us because they're not going to lose a whole RV to us. So I, I'm actually even more protected in that sense. So that's why we like to go after those. So like I have concierge suites, you know, they're high ceiling with an electrical outlet. So I'm going after that person that can pay for luxury. And I, I know at times people will say that, um, you know, paying for luxury has a cost because if the economy tanks, honestly, a lot of these clients, the economy will not affect them. You know, I, mm-hmm. I to be honest, because of what happened to my house care, I think there was always a worry for up until maybe even like three years ago that mm-hmm. I could die completely poor and penniless. Because I mean, to be honest, there's times that I, I probably dramatized the situation more while I was thinking, oh, I'm going to die, you know, poor. When I really realized that like now, if, if my family is suffering and we're the top like 99.5%. What is happening to the 99.5% beneath us? There's no way that that's going to hit us that hard because if it does, you know, I, I would be more worried about like a government collapse than I'd be more worried about it hurting mm-hmm. us in that sense. So I, I get a question. If you, uh, if someone doesn't pay you, we were talking about that. Um, how long does it take to get to take possession of that uh, storage. And then you said, whatever's in there, you have to sell and reimburse them. I should know this off the top of my head, but I believe it's 48 days. I can get them out super, super fast. Um, oh, wow. We don't do it in 48 days um, because normally what happens is that uh, we are getting, uh, where their auction stuff is getting auctioned on day 68 when they owe roughly three months rent. Because I mean, we all have these stories where like, you know, like last year in multi late fees, all my vacations were paid for by late fee from tenants. So the late fee income is solid. Um, so I I personally think that's kind of the best bread and butter. But if I really wanted to do it like right away, I can do it basically as little as 48 days. So the reason I don't know that is because once we set it in the system, our yeah. system automatically sends those alerts to them. And so we actually are, are like, Five days is a big one in Michigan. You can do 20% or $20. And so that will be fall to the T. And then everything else they get, what happens with the tenants is every time they get alert, something happens. So day five, they get a lockout late fee. They normally pay within 24 hours. Day 12, they basically can get actually, uh, sorry, they can actually get like physically like locked out. And then we can also notify them of an auction procedure. 24 hours, we get paid with that. So everything we do, like if we see we're going to lock them out on day 12, most of the time we actually don't lock them out until day 14 to 15 because mm-hmm. a lot of times what used to happen is that we'd run out there and lock them out and then they pay immediately because they got the alert because they, yeah. they don't do anything until they're reminded. And then then they get another auction like, hey, we're actually posting your stuff for auction. They pay within 24 hours. So we push everything out a little bit past that um, simply because we, a lot of times they do pay. And then if they're by the time they get to day 68, they're three months behind and mm-hmm. with three late fees. And then at that point we auction. And when we auction, um, most of my time, my goal is just to get like one month rent back and then have them clean out the fee. So what they do is you buy an auction through us. I think we pay 10 or 20% to the auction site. They pay that deposit to the auction site. We collect the rest from that person. And then we also collect the cleaning deposit as well. So they have to completely clean out the unit broom swept to mm-hmm. basically uh to get their deposit back and if they don't then i just keep the deposit and i'll just put you somebody else up i use that deposit to pay somebody else to do it but um so like because a lot of times you get these units especially these five by tens where it's like i mean it, it's closed like they might have had a lot of worth to the person but to the average person somebody else's used clothes is worth like 10 cents a shirt yeah so when that mm-hmm. happens you know, I'm just trying to get somebody to clean it out for me for free really at that point in time. So I don't have to pay somebody to come out and clean it. How much is a cleaning deposit? 
Uh, and it ranges from anywhere from fifty to one hundred fifty dollars, depending on the size of the unit. Hmm. Okay. All right, that makes sense. I was going to say, oh, is it is it yeah. uh, like a massive amount where people are like, oh, I'll clean that thing, or is it is it more like you know what? Some some will some will uh, clean it to get it back, and some people will be like, yeah, you just deal with it. Keep my hundred and fifty. Yeah, I mean, at a worst case scenario, a lot of times what they'll do is they'll clean out a good portion of stuff, and then they'll just give it back, and you keep the deposit. And it's like, well, hundred bucks, I can pay somebody with you know uh, a, a trailer to come out and just grab it. Or what we do is. We consolidate, you know, all the units into one. And then when that happens, we'll just get a dumpster and put it all in. But Makes my sense. goal is basically yeah. just to have, because we're all used to like a multi, like paying for, you know, nobody's coming here to clean somebody else's place out. So that's a unique thing in storage. Like somebody yeah. actually paid for somebody else's stuff. You know, now, now a lot of times you'll also see too, as well as that person comes in, they're like, man, I, I can't get someone to get this piano. I got all this stuff. And so they'll turn around and just rent it for us. And they become the renter with that person's stuff. And then they'll just slowly sell stuff out of too. That happens quite a bit too as well. And then, you know, and obviously you see those shows where, you know, people are actually doing that for a business. Uh, I would say maybe about a quarter of the people that um, do our auctions are actually doing that type of business as well, because it can be fairly lucrative, but I've also seen some people get burned pretty bad as well, because we, we, like, we have a quick disclosure that we make no representation. So you guys have ever seen the shows. Yeah. 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 Storage, storage wars or, or whatever it is. Yeah. You know, like we, we, I, one of my um, property managers at a time, one time made a mistake that said, we got a TV, blah, 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 all this stuff like that. And then it turned out it was just a TV box. Oh, <laughs> TV. <laughs> so we actually had to basically pay that guy. Uh, we basically gave that guy all his money back. He, and I know he took some stuff out of it um, because he basically, you said there was a TV and I was expecting a TV and it, it, we got shook down, but it was our mistake. Mm-hmm. And then actually what I just did is we actually just turned on re-auctioned it, took off the box thing, and then somebody else cleaned out for free for us. Um so, so that, so that, that easily happened pretty easily as well. Dude, all I can tell you is this is the most in-depth on every freaking uh, level I've ever yeah. heard anybody go into self-storage. And dude, like there's there's the names out there. There's the, well, go abundance guys, AJ and all these, mm-hmm. I mean, so many guys into self-storage. You're like, you're like into the, into the belly of self-storage. Yeah. I mean, that, that's why, like when I consult, I mean, I do like people are like, are just like, what the heck, you know, everything. But that's also why, like I had to switch my model up. Cause it's like, for me, I've always been learning. I, even though I outsource a lot of tasks, I've always had to learn the task first because I want to make sure it's taught properly to my sure. staff. So I had sure. to let go of that and then be like, Listen, let somebody else learn it and teach mm-hmm. my staff. I don't have to be the one to learn everything. So I know too much that I shouldn't have to know it, but I'm actually kind of happy that you asked me that question about the how fast I can get out. I didn't know it because it means that I'm not spending my time remembering things that are, are so little to the business. Makes sense. Makes sense. What, what about employees? Do you have a lot of employees? I, I always, I'm in multifamily, right? So I always try to say, well, you're just trading, you know, tenants for employees and, and managing employees. Am I wrong? What's. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the biggest thing is that um, if you, if your facility size is too small, it makes it very difficult to staff. And so there was okay. a transition to industry where everybody was going unmanned, like, cause all this technology, technology, yeah. technology, but then as you're getting markets more competitive now, people do have a value for customer service, especially when we know that if somebody gets great customer service on their first self storage call, yeah, they will a lot of times actually book that place. But if they call a third call party call center that's based overseas, person doesn't speak English, is not answering that question yeah. as well, then they're not going to book there. So now you're starting to see a lot of people switch back to a man model because you need to have that. We have both. You know, like I have a facility where I pay, it's actually the owner that we bought it from. And, you know, I, I that's a whole nother conversation. But basically, <laughs> um, I, I was like, listen, I'm concerned about we buy this facility from you. We're going to turn you into a multimillionaire overnight. Are you fine working for a salary under six figures? Because, you know, my main thing is I want you to feel respected that, you know, we value your time. I, I just can't, I can't pay you what a millionaire's time is working mm-hmm. at this facility. So so when we can do full-time management, then we do because obviously uh, it, it, it's a huge upsell. Lease-ups are astronomically faster customer service is better. We get more five-star reviews, SEO, everything's better. But 
there's obviously a significant cost, you know, paying anywhere from, you know, 40 to, you know, $90,000 a year, depending on the size of the facility with that. So. Got it. Interesting. So I, when, when, we, when we don't have a, 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 when we have an unmanned facility, we typically have um, a person that's doing two to three site visits a month where they're just getting, we're just uh, expensing it at like, you know, a 60 to $70 site visit fee to do lockouts to do all those kind of things. That yeah, makes sense. I was going to apologize. I was looking away like in the Dominican, the bugs are bigger than Grant's inflated head. And I thought I saw one <laughs> crawling along the floor here. I was just, I was starting to like be, be cool. Jealous. Be cool. Don't don't freak out on camera. <laughs> but no, it's not. I don't think it is anyway. I hope that's not. But um, <laughs> I hope um, you freak out on camera. Yeah, that would be sure. great, wouldn't it? I actually mm-hmm. kind of would be funny. But anyway, uh, Charlie. So let's let's talk about uh, uh, GoBundance for a minute here. You've been a member for a bit, at least over a year, I think. If I'm not mistaken, maybe it's about yeah, a, year, but... a little over a year. You know, I uh, I always I well back when GoBundance had fewer members, I knew it felt like ten or fifteen percent of the members. So I was like, ah, do I want to join this group? I already might. I know a lot of the guys, anyways. But uh, sure. you know, my my biggest mistake is not joining sooner because I I found a lot of value with it. Um, you know, even with the guy, even even with the guys that I do know already, you know, in that in that sense too. So, what's kind of the you know, what's your biggest like when you say, "Hey, I, I get a lot of value from GoBundance." What's some of the things that you get the most value out of? So this, this might be a surprise to a lot of people because you're in a you know a millionaire's mastermind essentially, but um, you know, seeing guys like you know Jamie and Grant and you guys like you know and just being content, like you know, if you put me in a group with like, something that's doing really really well. I don't want to say I would go borderline, like be a dick, but I get competitive. I'm like, shoot, I want to do that. He just did 120 million to do. Yeah. I want to do that. I want to do that. And then it just got to the point where I'm like, especially in go abundance, you're, you're never going to be that top guy. I know some of the guys are top guys and how much they're working, like putting systems in place 90 hours a week. And I'm just like, yeah. you know, I, I gotta, I gotta be happy with where I'm at. So the biggest thing that's really helped me with this basic work-life balance. Um, mm. I've been working really only about 20 to 25 hours a week for the last. And that was actually one of the reasons why we switched our business model up is because if I wanted to go to a, that full scale model, keep it there, I needed to work closer to 40, but you know, when my dad moved in and, you know, especially, and I was spending weeks away from it, you know, I realized like, I need to, um, you know, really change my lifestyle stuff. So like, you know, my work schedule, like, um, today I, I woke up at seven twenty. Last, you know, my wife would make fun. I probably woke up closer to eight. I stayed up late watching Netflix last night, but, um, on average, I wake up at seven twenty-five in the morning. Um, first hour and a half of days, getting kids ready for school, making their lunch, Love it, doing that. And then as soon as we drop the kids off at school, it's an hour in the gym. And then mm-hmm. after I get out from the gym, get a smoothie, do whatever I can to delay the work day. And then I start my work day around 1030. Work until three o'clock. Then it's all kids doing all their jujitsu, soccer, um, keeping them out of jail, whatever, whatever <laughs> they are doing. And then and I know I work a couple hours in the evening. So, so I, I basically built my schedule about what I prioritize the most, which is basically my family and my health first thing in the morning. So nice. I love most that. people do the work schedule, plan the family stuff around it. I'm the exact opposite. It's funny. I'm, I'm, I'm similar and I get up or I get up early. I get up 530, typically 5, 530. And uh, I start with like, just whatever I want, either some quiet or I'll do some work, honestly, first thing. It's just like my mind is just popping. So I go. But then I, I do all the kids. I make the joke like I'll do all the kids lunches. I'll get them ready for school. I'll, I'll get them dressed. I'll get everything. And then my wife like stumbles out of the room at, at 730 or whatever to take them to school and somehow gets them there late. It blows my mind. Like I did everything. <laughs> it's teed up. All you do is jump in the car oh, and go. Boy. Now, Grant wakes up yeah. around three. So that's when he starts the day. Yeah, he works- I, heard, I heard that. That's nuts. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Grant's three to three fifteen. No, I mean PM. He gets up in the afternoon. Yeah, yeah. No, 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 no. <laughs> I, I wake up at six now, and then I work out in the morning. So, so but I'm very protective yeah. of that. You know that, Gruber. I do. I do. Yeah. yeah. Don't yeah. call. Yeah. Well, I still do. I still will. Yeah. But anyway, Charlie, let's wrap this on a question from the GoBundance card game. The question is, what is? And actually, I. I wonder how you'll answer this. What is your greatest feat of physical endurance? Hmm. Oh, oh, physical endurance. Uh, oh, I'm trying. To, that's a tough one. Um, 
I mean, recent memory, um, we just climbed Mount Whitney, which is uh, the uh, yeah. tallest peak in the lower 48. Wow. Um, and then... Um, That's New Hampshire, right? If I'm not mistaken? Uh, no, it's, uh, it's uh, Southern California. Oh, yeah. Complete yeah, opposite close. side of the country. Close. Never mind. Yeah, so so I do I do some type of physical event every year, but um, that or, um, you know, somebody Mount Rainier, um, because, I mean, that one is... that That's a legit mountain and glacier. Um, but... Um, I, you know, I don't really have any super pressing. You know, I've done marathons, things like that, but nothing like crazy, crazy out there. So, so I would say, you know, uh, I, I the biggest thing that maybe I've done over the years, um, especially being health and fitness is that I've, I've maintained my health. My blood pressure is still low. Um, my blood cholesterol is as good as it was when in my late twenties. Nice. Mount Washington. I was thinking of that's the mountain in, in New Hampshire. I had to oh, Google okay. it quick. Yeah. So I got, I honestly yeah. thought maybe you were like, not no joke, but Overcoming cancer had to be a hell of a physical feat of endurance. I would, I would guess. I, I thought maybe you were going to go there on that. But that's... Anybody will tell you that uh, if any, any cancer survival will tell you it has nothing to do with the physical endurance. That's enough to do with the mental endurance because, especially because, um, you know, for me, my ADD is ridiculously horrible. Um, you know, my my wife drives my wife nuts. Um, but uh, to have my mind race, not doing anything, sitting in bed or whatever, you know, having massive headaches. Uh, it, it's all mental endurance. The people that survive are people that go, that can endure, you know, which, you know, it's a fun thing that you look at. It's like, I mean, shoot, if you can get endure cancer, how can you not be a millionaire in real estate? Because I mean, the, the challenge was significantly harder. And then I, I wasn't even, I didn't have terminal cancer either as well. It wasn't even, wasn't even a risk for it, but you know, cause it got caught fairly early. So good for you, man. Wow. No, that's incredible. Grant, do you have any wrap up questions before we, uh, before we wrap? No, that was uh, that was pretty great, man. I I appreciate it, Charlie. What uh, what's the best place for people to reach out or follow or wherever you want to direct folks? Um, so by my limited social media following, my YouTube <laughs> channel at Twinos Capital is probably the most popular. Um, so uh, just type in Twinos Capital on YouTube, you'll find it pretty easily. And then after that, um, I actually have fairly high blockers on social media, so the only one you can access me publicly at is at Instagram at Charles C. And then my last name, K-A-O. So Charles C. K-A-O. Perfect. Perfect. And you do Twin some Oaks great Cap videos too, though, on uh, self-storage on your on your uh, social media, though. I've watched a lot of those. Yeah, I know. Uh, one of the feedbacks I got was that I need to uh, put out more content. And also, actually, I learned this too as well from my one of my social media guru buddies. But I need to... Um, do series and I need to give people a, a coming soon. So I'm starting to do more like three ah, parts and whatnot. So look at that. But look I'll be speaking that. about um basically um how to bring construction and costs down at ISS in 2023. Amazing. Amazing. Good stuff. And I appreciate you coming on as always. And uh yeah, we'll be in touch uh as we go along. So I appreciate you being on here. Thanks, cool. Charlie. Right. See you.